What is it that experiences our self? Only our self. There is only one substance in experience, and it is pervaded by and made out of knowing our awareness. In the classical language of non-duality, this is sometimes expressed in phrases such as awareness only knows itself. But this may seem abstract. It is simply an attempt to describe the seamless intimacy of experience in which there is no room for a self, object, or other, or world. No room to step back from experience and find it happy or unhappy, right or wrong, good or bad. No time in which to step out of the now into an imaginary past or into a future in which we may become, evolve, or progress. No possibility of stepping out into the intimacy of love, into the relationship with another. No possibility of knowing anything other than knowing, of being anything other than being, of loving anything other than loving. No possibility of a thought arising which would attempt to frame the intimacy of experience in the abstract forms of the mind, no possibility for ourself to become a self, a fragment, a part, no possibility for the world to jump outside and for the self to contract inside, no possibility for time, distance, or space to appear. So those are the words of my guest today. Mr. Rupert Spira, who I have very much been looking forward to having on the show. He is an English teacher of the, quote, direct path, which is a method of spiritual self-inquiry through talks and writing. He is a notable English studio potter as well with works in public and private collections. Rupert was deeply interested in the nature of reality and consciousness from a very early age, and by age 17, he was studying meditation and practicing a classic Indian method of spiritual inquiry called Advaita Vedanta. He has studied with Dr. Francis Rolls, Shantananda Saraswati, and is steeped in the wisdom of thinkers and mystics such as Krishnamurti, Rumi, Sri Ramana Maharshi, and Robert Adams. He regularly holds meetings and retreats worldwide, exploring non-dual teachings from a diverse array of sources, from the Advaita Vedanta, Kashmir Shaivism, Hinduism, Buddhism, mystical Christianity, Sufism, and Zen. He is the author of eight books, including The Transparency of Things, Contemplating the Nature of Experience, The Ashes of Love, The Nature of Consciousness, and The Essence of Meditation, and his latest book is titled A Meditation on I Am. So this is a deep exploration into the nature of consciousness and time. Rupert and I have a bit of a dialogue around his perspectives from a a non-dual framework of reality. And he unpacks a little bit of what he perceives reality to be from from this perspective and shares some deep insight into how we can move more into our consciousness, how we can be more conscious on a daily basis, how we can use some of these practices of awareness within our own meditation 
uh, and just in our everyday life. So it's very much a, a deep philosophical, spiritual conversations, uh, an ontological and teleological look at existence. And I hope that you very much enjoy it because I have been studying some of Rupert's work for a while and I very much enjoy his teachings and the way that he leads meditations. Uh, I've attended a few of his retreats and um, done quite a few of his meditations and read quite a few of his books because I find the framework that he uh, puts out to be quite, quite accurate in some ways based on my meditative experiences. Without any further delay, please welcome Rupert Spira. Thank you for inviting me, Connor. Yeah, this is, a, it's a real pleasure. I've been listening to and following along with your work for quite some time and I've read a number of your books and even attended an online meditation retreat because I couldn't, I couldn't be there in person, obviously, because of COVID. But I really, there's something about your teaching and the, the way in which you form your ideas or concepts around meditation that, that I feel almost physically within me. And so I'm, I'm very intrigued to have this conversation because it's out of all of the people, the teachers that I've listened to over the years. I mean, I've been exploring Buddhism and Zen and meditation for probably 12 to 15 years now. And there's something about the way in which you're able to articulate it that I feel points to the thing, <laughs> points to awareness, you know, the, the finger pointing to the moon in a way that that allows me to to comprehend it and experience it in a much more clear manner. And so first, I just wanted to thank you for that because you've helped to shed light on something that I have been really exploring for a very long time and your words really ring true for me. So that's, that's my fanboy appreciation and gratitude well, before we begin. <laughs> thank you for saying that, Connor. I'm, I'm very, I'm very glad to, very happy to hear that. Yeah. And, and, and then I have to ask you the question, which is tell us a story about a defining moment in your life that made you who you are today, which is such an interesting question to, to pose to someone like yourself. So I'm, I'm looking Goodness. forward to what you say. <laughs> that's, um, that's quite a question to, to start with. I could choose so many moments. Let's go all the way back to my, my early 20s. In fact, I must have been about 20. And I tell this story because it's particularly relevant for the subject matter of our of our talk. I was um, living and working in the southwest of England, uh, training to be a, a potter in a very remote, almost a, a kind of Zen-like monastic circumstance. But I had a girlfriend, and uh, not 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 living with me or even near me. So we very rarely saw each other, but we had been together for a few years. And in my innocence and naivety, I just presumed we were going to, you know, have, have four children and live happily ever after. <laughs> We'd been together for a few years and uh, I was very much in love. And one night she called and ended the relationship in a conversation that can't have lasted more than two minutes. We'd been together for about three years by this, by this time. And the bottom just fell out of my world completely. It was in a moment or in a period of a couple of minutes, everything in which I had invested my happiness collapsed. 
And I realized really for the first time ever, although I had been interested in these matters for some time, I had been meditating and studying the classical Advaita Vedanta teaching for, for three or four years by this time. But this was the first time it became really clear to me in, in, a, in a visceral way, not just a, a sort of interesting intellectual way, but really in a visceral way that I had invested my happiness in a person, that my happiness depended upon my relationship with this person and my projection into the future as to how my life was going to unfold with her. And it seemed so secure. It had never occurred to me that we would separate. Or, and then in a couple of minutes, it just came to an end. And I really became, it became clear to me for the first time the extent to which I had invested my happiness in objective experience, in this case, a relationship. So really for the first time in my life, this event precipitated the question in me, what is a reliable source of happiness? If any objective experience, in this case, a relationship, but a, a, a job, one's finances, a house, a, a family, if, if any object, one's health, if any objective circumstance can disappear or come to an end at a moment's notice, what sense does it make to, to invest one's happiness in something so fragile, so fleeting, so insecure? And as I said, I had already been interested in these matters, but this event injected intensity into me, into my spiritual search, which was really the search what is the search for, for lasting happiness? Where, where, where can one find lasting happiness? Where, what is the source of peace? So this event really, it shaped, it profoundly shaped my life. My life really changed then. As I say, I had been interested in these matters, but that my interest grew into a kind of it grew in intensity and, and passion. I was determined to find out where can we find happiness. So what what was the answer to that? I mean, I feel like you have to give us the, the insight into that because I, I mean, I think oh. I would I would just say that you know I've I've certainly been intrigued with that as well. I think part of my spiritual endeavor has been a pursuit trying to understand that question as well. So how did that unfold? On a join the club, I think all, <laughs> all 8 billion of us, if we were to ask everyone, I mean, literally everyone, not just those relative few of us that are interested in spiritual matters or non-duality, but literally everyone, what is it that you really want most of all in life? Mm. To begin with, most people would say an intimate relationship, a family, better health, a beautiful home, um, more money, or, or, and so on. But if we then asked, but, but why do you want these things. They would say, oh, on account of the happiness that I believe will be derived from them. If we were to ask someone, okay, if you were to, to find that intimate relationship, but you knew that it would be a source of misery to you, would you still desire it? Oh, of course not. <laughs> <laughs> even, even if the search for enlightenment, if, if one was told, okay, you can have enlightenment, 
if, if some some magician said, said, I can give you enlightenment, but it will make you miserable, do you still want it? Well, of, co- of course we wouldn't. So the desire for happiness is even higher than the desire for enlightenment. In fact, we only desire enlightenment, or indeed, whatever it is we desire, for, for the happiness we believe will be derived from it. Hmm. What did I what did I discover? I discovered really, and then now f- fast forward s- several several years, I discovered really what all the great religious and um, spiritual traditions have been saying for centuries, I- I- indeed millennia, namely that happiness is the very nature of our being, and therefore to find happiness, one need only know the nature of one's being. One need only know oneself as one essentially is. That's it. And after 20 years or so of of exploring, it, it became my experience. I found out that this was true. The happiness that I had been seeking all along was simply the nature of my being. And it's available to everyone. And and I mean everyone, not not just those relative relative few of us interested in spiritual matters, but all eight billion of us. It is not it is not complicated. One does not have to become a Buddhist or a Christian or one doesn't have to, to, to nor does one have to engage in elaborate practices. So I'm not suggesting there's anything wrong with becoming a Buddhist or a Christian or but but it's simple that the, the essential understanding that lies at the heart of all the great religious and spiritual traditions is simple. If you want lasting peace and happiness, you have to go into yourself and recognize the nature of yourself as you essentially are. Now, what, why don't we recognize that? But everybody, all eight billion of us, we all have a sense of ourself. Everybody has the sense of being myself. So everybody knows their self to a degree, but not everybody knows their self clearly. And it is this lack of clear self-knowledge, I would suggest, and all the great re- traditions suggest, that is responsible for the, for the veiling of our innate peace and joy. And that is why that self-knowledge is, is really the, lies at the center of all the great traditions. It's why it's why the words "know thyself" are carved above the above the entrance of um, Apollo in in Delphi. This this, this understanding of, of the necessity to know oneself stands at the very foundation of Western civilization, and, and of course, in, in the East, there are many examples of it. Yeah, I'm hoping that you can elaborate a little bit more on the nature of the self, because I've heard you talk a little bit. About this in a number of ways, you know, you, in your in your book, the nature of consciousness, I, I believe that in some ways you're sort of talking about what the nature of the self is, and so maybe if you can just outline that a little bit more, not not necessarily in sort of defining it, but but to give the listener and myself a little bit more context for what is the true nature of of us what is the true nature of the self and where does consciousness sort of fit into there and how you how do you define consciousness because i think the sort of mainstream materialist viewpoint of consciousness is that it's it's a byproduct of material it's a byproduct of matter yeah. And I think that from my understanding, there's sort of an opposing view that you hold. And I think a lot of 
a lot of spiritual teachings and, and religions actually hold, which is that consciousness is primary. Consciousness is a priori in some ways. And so I'm, I'm hoping that you can maybe shed some light on that. I know I just sort of put out a few different components, so I'll let you sort yes. of choose what pathway you would like to well, go you, down. You, you've made my job very easy, Connor. <laughs> so, yes, the essential nature of anything is the aspect of that thing that cannot be removed from it. So the essential nature of ourself is that aspect of ourself that remains behind when everything that is not essential to us is removed. And if we explore this experientially, not, not intellectually, but if we actually make an experiential exploration of what is our essential nature, removing everything that is superfluous to us, what we end up with is consciousness or awareness. For instance, our thoughts are obviously not essential to us. If a thought was essential to us, then every time a thought disappeared, we would feel that a little bit of us disappeared with it. But mm. we don't feel that, that the thoughts appear, they last for a while, they, they vanish. Uh, the thought doesn't actually add anything to us when it appears. It doesn't remove anything from us when it leaves. Likewise, our emotions, they may be very, very intimate, very intense, but they're not essential to us. We exist in the absence of any particular emotion. The same with perceptions, sensations, activities, relationships. So if we, if we remove everything that is not essential to us, the, the one element of experience that we cannot remove experientially from ourself is consciousness. Mm -hmm. that, that, is our, that is our bottom line. It is our primary experience. It is not possible to have an, an experience of ourself or indeed of, of anything without consciousness. So consciousness is, is the, the prerequisite for any experience or knowledge. So consciousness is primary in our experience. And it, I would suggest it is the only element of our experience that remains consistent throughout all experience. For instance, again, let's make this a practical and not just philosophical or, or intellectual. If I were to ask you now, are any of the thoughts, images, feelings, sensations, or perceptions that you are currently having the same as those that you were having, let's say, this time yesterday? I don't think so, no. I mean, I think surely that your current thought, <laughs> let's, just, let's just call it thought and perception to keep the list short. Surely the current thought and perception that you are having now is different from, different. from, it, yeah. it's different from the thought and perception that you were having um, two minutes ago, two days ago, two years ago, when you were 20 years old, when you were two years old. Your thoughts and perceptions have changed innumerable times in your life. There's no constant, no constancy there. Hmm. There's no continuity in objective experience. By objective experience, I mean thoughts, images, feelings, sensations, perceptions. Now, what about I, if I asked you the question, is the awareness that is aware of your current experience different from the awareness that was aware of your experience this time yesterday? No, I, I don't think it is. Like I feel like the awareness has been, and I think this is part of what has been somewhat illuminating about 
interacting with the the way in which you, you your your meditation is is taught in some ways that it's how do I say this? I've had the feeling being in in that sort of seat of awareness and that that has been there since as far as I can fall even as a child yes. like as a child I experienced that and it's just it's such an interesting thing. Conan, have you not always felt I am myself? That, that you, you feel there is a continuity to your identity. You don't feel I'm one person one day and I, I'm James the next day and Harry the next day. And you, know, you always feel, you feel I'm essentially the same person or the same self now that I was yesterday, last year. And when I was a two-year-old boy, do you not feel that you're essentially the same self as you were as a two-year-old boy? Well, none of your thoughts feelings, sensations, or perceptions are the same now as they were yesterday, 10 years ago, 20 years ago, or when you were a two-year-old boy. So none of your thoughts, feelings, sensations, or perceptions can account for your absolute certainty. I am the same self. Mm -hmm. So where does that sense of the continuity of your identity come from? There must be one element of your experience that is continuous. Otherwise, you would not have the sense of continuity. Now, what is that? What has remained continuous throughout your life? Yeah, I mean, as far as I can tell, it's, it's just the awareness of that experience. Just the fact of being aware. Everything else comes and goes. So that, that being aware is like the screen and all your thoughts, images, feelings, sensations, perceptions, and so on are like so many images or movies that that play on the screen. But just as a movie requires a, a, a permanent background, so uh, experience re- requires this the continuity of awareness. And, and that, I would suggest, is our essential identity. Mm-hmm. Now, we can go further. If I were to ask you now, describe your thoughts or your perceptions or your, your feelings, your bodily sensations, you would, des- you, you would describe their, their qualities, their features, their, their, you, you, there would be something objective there for you to describe. What if I were to ask you and, and refer to your experience of being aware, not, not, not your ideas or what you've read in a book, but if you were to refer now to the simple fact of being aware, Nothing mystical or, or spirit, just the ordinary, familiar feeling of being aware. How would you describe it? It's almost like, a, it, I mean, it, it really is, it's, it's hard for me to put to language sometimes, but it's the experience of what is and what is happening and what I'm witnessing simultaneously. What, what, what you are witnessing is what you awareness are aware of. Yeah. Now, if I ask you what you're witnessing, you can describe it easily. Oh, mm-hmm. Rupert's wearing a blue shirt, or, or I'm feeling a little bit... But, but, but No, I'm asking you about that which is aware of whatever you are witnessing. It's, it's uh, the experience of the unchanging. I, I don't know if it, I can... It's unchanging, yes. It's ever-present. You, you're struggling to say anything mm-hmm. about it, and... Quite rightly, Connor, it's, it's, a, it's an unkind question to ask you. Uh, <laughs> you're, you're right to struggle to say, if you were to ask me a question about it, I, I would also struggle to say something true about it. Why? Mm. 
because there's nothing objective there that we can describe. It's not like a thought or a feeling or a sensation or a perception. It has no color or size or shape or taste or smell. So there's no language to describe it. In fact, your, your, your initial silence was, was, in fact, the most accurate thing <laughs> you said about it. Now, having no objective qualities or features, how can we legitimately claim that it is temporary or finite or limited? We can't. The reason we think that our essential self is something temporary and finite and limited is because we have allowed ourselves to become mixed up with the content of experience. We have identified ourselves with the content of our thoughts, feelings, bodily sensations, and so on. And this, this mixture of our self, unlimited awareness, with the qualities of experience produces an apparently temporary, finite, separate self or ego. Yeah, I mean, I think the the interesting part, I mean, it's funny because it's like when I come into contact with this, it's hard to know truly what questions to ask once uh, once I sort of reach this place, you know, it's like realizing a part of the Tao in some way, you know, coming into contact with awareness, yeah. Okay, so I think I have a somewhat of a, a grasp on, you know, what you're alluding to that that consciousness is our our primary experience and that the the ego objective experience is sort of formed outside of that. And I I guess this is sort of at the heart of the non-dual teaching, right? That there is no differentiation between awareness and what we are aware that all of that is simultaneously us. Like, how would you, how would you break that down? Because I think you know, there's, is there a difference between non-dual this non-dual concept? And I believe that you're you're in the Vedanta tradition. Is there a difference between that and something like solipsism or or panpsychism? And are these labels even necessary? All right. Okay. So, I suggested earlier that. The great, the great understanding that is contained in all the great religious and spiritual treat, teachings is this understanding that happiness is the nature of our being. That, that's one aspect of the non-dual understanding, and it relates to our internal experience. But there's a, a second aspect of the non-dual understanding, which relates to our external experience, that is our experience of, of the world. And it's states essentially that what we essentially are and what the world essentially is are one. In other words, that consciousness is the ultimate reality of the universe. It is the ultimate reality of ourself, but it is also the ultimate reality of the the universe that we perceive. So that although it appears from our limited perspective that reality is divided into two parts, a self and a world, mind and matter. In reality, this is just due to the limitations of our perceptual apparatus, and that in reality, reality is a, is a single indivisible whole. Now, how does that relate to ideal solipsism and panpsychism? It's, it's very different from solipsism. Solipsism states, 
only my own mind exists. So I'm sorry, Connor, you don't have a mind. You're not hearing anything now. You're not experiencing anything. You're just an image in my perceptual field. And none of your listeners, I'm afraid, from the point of view of it, none of them are really hearing this talk because there are no other minds. Hmm. There are no other selves. There, there is Nobody else is having experience. Only I, only Rupert. That, that's what solipsism states. Rupert's mind is the only mind there is. Now, that is very, very different from the suggestion the, in the non-dual traditions, which is all reality is not contained in one single mind. It is contained in infinite consciousness. And that each of our minds is a localization of that infinite consciousness. So the non-dual understanding suggests that the universe appears in consciousness, but it exists and ultimately is made of consciousness, but it exists outside of and independent of its being perceived by any individual mind. Now, we can come back to, to that, explore mm -hmm. that more, if you like, in a minute, because you, you asked how this related to both solipsism and panpsychism. Panpsychism is another idea which is very, very fashionable in, in um, philosophy of mind circles now, which is the idea basically that the universe is made up of particles, subatomic particles, whatever exactly those particles may be. But, and that each of these particles is conscious. So this again is very different from the non-dual understanding, which suggests that only consciousness is conscious. The, the idea of panpsychism is an extension of the primary mistake of materialism, namely that what we essentially are as a human being is a physical body, and that we as a physical body have an attribute of consciousness in other words, that we, this body, is conscious or has consciousness. Now, if we take that as the basic fact of our experience, we then reason, okay, well, dogs and cats also have consciousness, and, and that's corroborated by the fact that when you tread on your cat's tail, it screeches. Why? Because it is conscious of the pain. Oh, that makes sense. And we can do the same experiment with 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 birds and fishes and, uh, and even uh, fleas and ants, they seem to have consciousness. They respond to their environment. So they must have at least a degree of consciousness. So reasoning in this way, we go on and on and on, and we end up at the end with the idea, well, okay, everything has a degree of consciousness, not just humans and dogs and cats and fishes and birds and ants and fleas, but, but everything, even subatomic particles, have a modicum of consciousness. And the, this, is, this is a way, this idea, the idea of panpsychism is based on the belief it is I, this body, who has consciousness or is consciousness. That's the primary belief that defines materialism. So panpsychism is just an extension of arterialist paradigm. Uh, but it's a way 
in philosophy of mind circles that philosophers, contemporary philosophers, are able to accommodate the idea that consciousness may be universal without giving up their materialist assumptions. Mm. Sooner or later, in, in, in fact, it's already happening. There are a number of uh, philosophers now uh, who realize that it's not, it, it's not matter that has consciousness. Consciousness is primary. And matter is what the activity of consciousness looks like from a localized perspective. So those are my that that's a brief mm -hmm. response to your question about solipsism and panpsychism. We can and and how they're very different and often mistaken on the contempt in the contemporary in some con spiritual circles and philosophy of mind circles, how they're mistaken for the non-dual understanding. So I'm happy to go into more detail if you like, but I, I don't want to go too deeply into Yeah, no, no, it's, I mean, I think that's good. I think that sort of answers my, my question and it brings up, you know, Krishnamurti talked extensively about the need or a sort of motion towards moving beyond our, our current traditional concept of time. And I'm curious about how you see time fitting into this, into this movement towards, I don't know how else to say it, being in the seat of awareness. Because for me, I've always, I've had a, a sort of experience that the, the ego is caught within the finite, that the ego is the manifestation of all of these moments and that the awareness is somehow maybe not transcendent of that, but exists in somewhat of a different playing field or plane. And I'm curious if you can speak to that, like where does time fit into this? Because even, you know, you have quantum physicists like, I can't remember what his name is, Corelli. He's a very famous Italian quantum physicist. And he talks about as we move, you know, down into the subatomic levels of quantum mechanics, that time sort of begins to break down and ceases to exist. And that, you know, past and future are somewhat of an illusion in in many ways that they're that they're entropic states that we can look back on and i think what you're maybe talking about in some ways is that the experience that we have of awareness is the maybe the only constant that we can that we are and i guess i think that's a, a good way of saying it so i'll maybe i'll i'll leave that heavily yeah. that dense question at your doorstep and <laughs> and and just see what you have to say about it because i think for me in my meditations i've experienced this sort of distinction that my ego is very wrapped in time it's very obsessed with and consumed by the experience of time and that outside of that experience my awareness is not it is the ever present aspect of me and maybe of existence and so I'm, I'm i'm hoping that maybe you can just speak to that in yeah. some manner yes well again i'd like to to respond to you connor experientially rather than please yeah philosophically so time it, it's it, it's it's difficult if not impossible to define time without referring to time itself we, we can say mm. time is the duration between the past and the present but that that's just like saying time is the time between. But <laughs> in order to in order to think about time, we have to to define to, to it in some way. So let's agree that time is 
the, the space or the distance or the duration between a, a point in the past and 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 now, or a point in the past and tomorrow morning, or tomorrow morning and tomorrow evening. Mm. So we can't make sense of time without, in some way, uh, referring to the past and the future. So now, in your actual experience, have you ever left what we call now and visited that place we refer to as the past not not thought about it we can all think about it but when we think about the past our thought doesn't take place in the past it takes place now Hmm. but have we ever actually experienced the place that we refer to as the past no has anyone ever been there or experienced it could anyone ever experience it no i don't think so (laughs) because if they had an experience of it it would be by definition, an experience that takes place now. But experiences, by definition, takes place now. Likewise, no one's ever had an, an experience of the future. Now, if nobody, n- none of the billions of people who, who have existed, if nobody has, for a moment, experienced a past or a future, could it be that our model of time is simply that, a model which is necessary for everyday life, but a, but a model that doesn't accurately portray the nature of reality. Because surely, in order to build a model of reality, we must start with our experience. Either we start with our experience or we start with an, an, an abstract model, but then we could choose any model at all. So if our models are going to be grounded in, in reality, they must start with something that is verifiable in our experience. And nobody has ever experienced a past or a future. And therefore, so let me ask you another question. You, you experience what we call now. We, we are all experiencing. We know what we mean when we say now. Now, is it your experience that now is a fleeting moment? No. Or is it your experience that now is ever present? Yeah, it's, it seems it seems somehow almost inextricably connected to awareness itself. Exactly. Exactly. If I were to ask you kind of how many moments of now have you experienced <laughs> since we've been talking to each other? <laughs> what would I mean, you say? Like infinite, it's just it's a uh... well, no, no, no. It's not infinite moments. Just it's just mm. one. It's just one experience. The now is always one. Ex- you haven't actually experienced infinite moments. You only experience infinite moments if you believe that time is a the the, the now is a is a fraction of a mm. second. Then, if our experience of the now was a fraction of a second, then indeed we would have experienced millions of them. But we're not experiencing millions of fractions of a second. No, it's just always now. And given that you've, ne- you, you, you've, you've, you've admitted I've never experienced the past or the future, can you really say that it is your experience that now is moving along a line of time? Or is the now stationary? Yeah, that's that's a little bit more challenging, but it, it would seem though it's it's more of a stationary position. It's it's stationary because we have no experience 
of the of a line of time between the past and the future through which the now could be moving. The experience of now is is stationary. It's stable and it, it is awareness, as you rightly observed. It, it, the now is the presence of awareness. It's not going anywhere. It hasn't come from somewhere. It is, it is eternal. And by eternal, I mean ever-present, not everlasting. It, it, it is in a vertical dimension, not a horizontal dimension. However, when we think about that vertical dimension, the eternal now, thought refracts it and spreads out the eternal and makes it seem like the everlasting. So I would suggest that time is what consciousness looks like when it is refracted through thought. And just to give you something else to consider, (laughs) we have time to go into it. I would suggest that space is what consciousness looks like when refracted through sense perception. In other words, time and space are not fundamental to reality. Reality is dimensionless consciousness. It only appears as time and space when refracted through the limited, the prismic activity of thinking and perceiving. Well, that one is something I will go back and listen to and chew on. And because I I feel like there is a quality, really profound truth in there that I can, I, I think one of the things that I really appreciate is that you do bring things back to an experiential nature. And in a time where we are so riddled with and consumed by a the addiction to thinking, which takes us out of experience, which takes us away, arguably further away from awareness itself, this nature of being that you're talking about, away from consciousness. Yeah. I appreciate the, the sort of relentlessness of pulling things back to that experiential yeah. aspect and element. Yes. I'm not against thinking, as you know. Mm-hmm. I like thinking. I think thought is a, is a beautiful instrument but i like to to think i like to to build if 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 i want to build a model of reality with 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 thoughts i want to base it on something that is true in experience otherwise otherwise we could just pluck any theory Mm. If, if 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 it's not if we do not demand that our models of reality are grounded in experience then any theory will do. Yeah. So I, I, I love thinking, but thinking, in my opinion, should should serve experience and come from experience mm. and, and actually lead us to our actual experience. Because most of us, most of us, uh, we, we, we perceive the world. We, we, we perceive our, our, we, our experience is filtered through the overlay of conceptual thought. So we don't really experience reality as it is. We experience reality as it is filtered through our faculties of thinking and perceiving. Mm -hmm. So the purpose of thinking, at least in this context, in the context that we're speaking, would be to, to probe deeply into what is true of our experience and to help us to experience reality in a way that is, that is true. And then the, 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 primary, the fundamental fact about reality, I would suggest, is is that it is one. 
that there is one infinite indivisible reality and all people, all animals and all things derive their apparently independent existence from that single reality. In, in other words, we are, we are one. Beautiful. Well, yeah, go ahead. Well, I, I was going like to say, if, if you look at, to take what's take going on in the world today, politically, socially, ecologically, all the challenges or, or many of the challenges we, we face are brought about by human activity, which is based upon the belief that we are separate. We are separate from one another. We are separate from animals and we are separate from the earth. And as soon as we believe we are separate from another person, another animal, or the environment, we can behave, we can treat that person or, or that environment in a way that has no consequences for ourselves, because they are separate from us. Cruelty, in unkindness, exploitation, injustice, all, all these violence, hatred, all these are only possible if we think the other is, is other. As soon as we have this felt understanding that the other is really myself, the universe is myself, all animals are myself, this, th that understanding alone compels us to, to act and behave in, 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 a, in a certain way. So this, this understanding has, has profound implications for our society, for us individually, but also in terms of our internal happiness, but also in, in terms of our relationships with each other and with the, with the earth, with nature. Yeah, well, well said. And I, I feel like what you're saying and the, and the, the sort of map of, of meaning or, or how we structure reality, as, as you're saying, that vantage point, the, the way in which we structure reality then dictates how we interact with it. And Absolutely. so if we're othering other people, right? I think it's, I don't remember where I heard this, but it was something about how the most damaging myth that we have is the myth of separation. And yeah. that as a human species, that we, when we allow that myth of separation to become a sort of cornerstone, our belief systems and how we operate, that it is somewhat catastrophic. And so I believe that what you're saying is that it, it that, that myth is exactly that. It's a myth. It's ex exactly, Connor. One, it is a myth. And, and the consequences of this myth, the consequences of the paradigm of materialism, the inevitable consequences are, are, are twofold. One, unhappiness on the inside. And two, conflict on the outside. Th these are the conflict with, between people and animals, and the exploitation and degradation of the earth. Th these are the inevitable con consequences of the materialistic paradigm, the, the, the paradigm of separation, unhappiness on the inside, conflict on the outside. And by contrast, the inevitable consequence of the non-dual understanding is peace and happiness on the inside, and love and beauty on the outside, but by love and beauty, I mean the recognition that, that, that we are one, that we share our being with everyone and everything. It is in some ways our work, our challenge, our confrontation to, and, and this is just my, my experience, like the, to, to move back towards that 
version of reality, that non-dual version of reality where there is no other, because it is so easy to create that objectification, you know, to objectify someone who, who believes differently or thinks differently, et cetera. And so, you know, I, I know that we're, we're close on time here and I feel like I, I could selfishly speak with you for an entire day and not, <laughs> not come away with without more questions and, and comments. And, and I really love this dialogue. And so I'm wondering if you can speak to that because I hear you sort of saying that this practice and there, there's, I'm actually going to bring one of your own quotes into the fray here and, and I'll just let you wrap up as you see fit. But in the meditation retreat that I took part in with you, you said prayer is an act of returning to the empty sanctuary of the heart. And there was something about that almost invocation, you know, invitation that felt so potent for our current time where, where we are, we have become a culture that is just drenched in separation and admired by our propensity to objectify other people. And so I'm hoping that you can just speak to how we move more directly towards the not the elimination of that objectification, but the the return to our, our natural being as we started off this conversation discussing. Yes. Yes, prayer is the this movement, this return to the empty sanctuary of the heart, prayer or meditation or contemplation. By the empty sanctuary of the heart, I mean our our naked, uncolored being, just the fact of being aware before our being is colored or qualified or conditioned by experience, just naked, self-aware being. And that experience, this, that non-objective experience, is the same for everyone. Everyone's thoughts, feelings, sensations, perceptions are different, but the fact of being aware is identical for everyone. And it is our, it has, it is our essential nature. And it shares none of the limited qualities of objective experience. It has no, there is no sense of lack in it. And thus its nature is joy. There is no agitation in it. Thus its nature is peace. And it's, I, I would suggest that it is the, that, that we as individuals emerge out of the universe. So the fundamental nature of ourself must be the same as the fundamental nature of the universe for the same reason that the nature of the wave is the same as the nature of the ocean. So the essential nature of what we are, just infinite self-aware being, is, I would suggest, the same as the nature of the universe. So this, this recognition, that this return to the empty sanctuary of the heart, we return to our naked being, and we first discover its nature as peace, and joy, the, the peace that passeth all understanding. But then the more deeply we go into it, we realize that this being is the being that we share with everyone and everything. And this takes us out of the privacy of our own heart, out into the world. And we realize that, that the, the being we are is, is shared with everyone. And that, this, that the recognition of our shared being is the experience of love or beauty. So these two aspects the, the inner recognition of our being as peace and happiness and the recognition that we share our being with everyone and everything, the experience of, of love or beauty. These are the two hallmarks, really, of the, un, of the non-dual understanding. 
And you talked just a few minutes ago about purpose. And I would say that one's purpose could be framed in reference to these two essential understandings, that an inner purpose, where our, our purpose is to, to rediscover our essential being and its innate joy. That, that is our, everybody's inner purpose, to, to return to the empty sanctuary of the heart, to recognize or to know again their own being with its innate peace and joy. But then we also have a, a purpose which relates to the second aspect of the non-dual understanding, namely that we share our being with everyone and everything. And that second aspect would be to, the second purpose, outer purpose, so to speak, would be to bring this understanding out into the world, to share it in the world in some way. And it might be what I'm doing, speaking and writing, and it might be what you're doing, holding interviews and podcasts. And there are, there are numerous other ways where this understanding can be communicated in, in the world. So I think these are our two, the two tasks to discover the nature of our own being and then to share that discovery in one way or another with humanity. Wonderful. That's, thank you. Thank you for that. And thank you for your contribution and, and, you know, thank you for being on the show and, and just for your voice and, in being able to articulate something and, and sort of point towards something that I feel is so fundamentally important with within our current time. You know, Terence McKenna at one point in his life talked about an archaic revolution that in order to solve some of the problems that we face in our current space, we have to reach very far back into the past in some ways and, and ex, you know, be able to return to a sense of ancient understanding. And yeah, very far back into the past, which right, really yeah. <laughs> translated in our language means very deeply into oneself. <laughs> yeah, beautiful. Thank you. Yes, yes. Okay, we're going to have to pause there. And I, I, I truly do hope that you come back on the show at some point because I, I mean, I, there's just a, a, you know, list of questions that I didn't get to and I enjoy your presence and conversation. So there's a selfish component to that as well. That'd but very um, <laughs> for everyone that is out there, uh, you can go and check out some of Rupert's work. Uh, Rupert, where would you like them to engage with you? What's the easiest route? Just your website? <laughs> Two places, really. YouTube, there are an embarrassing number of YouTube videos. I can't remember two, three, four hundred. So that, that's the easiest way just to get a quick uh, sample. And then if you want to explore more deeply, go to my to my website, rupertspira.com. Yeah, and I would, for everyone that's out there, recommend reading one of Rupert's books. I, I really enjoy The Nature of Consciousness. I believe that you have one coming out soon. Is that The correct? Nature of Consciousness is... is um, it's quite a quite a commitment to yeah. read that. I, I would, for most people, at least beginning, unless they're very philosophically minded, in which case the nature of consciousness would be fine. But I would perhaps recommend being aware of being aware. Hmm. It, it's it's shorter. It's based on meditations. It's very experiential, and and a new book which is coming out any minute called Being Myself. So yes, the nature of consciousness, being aware of being aware, or being myself. Wonderful. Wonderful. And we'll have links to all that in the show notes for everyone that's out there who enjoyed this conversation. Certainly share it with someone that you know will enjoy it and that you, you know will appreciate engaging in this dialogue and, uh, and process. And so until next week, this is Connor Beaton signing off. Rupert, thank you again for joining me. And, uh, thank you, Connor. It's been a pleasure talking with you. Thank you.